0: Hello and welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Basca, and I'm so glad to be able to welcome three Cinephiles who also tuned in to the Sundance Film Festival of 2021, which took place virtually for the first time ever. And they are here to share their experiences with the film festival, as well as their picks for movies to watch out for this year. We're cool. We're obviously like the coolest kids on the block. For a Sunday morning. Yeah,
1: we're killing it.
0: So I want to just quickly ask you guys we all access the Sundance Film Festival in different ways, in different formulations. I went in with. Zoya, who is a member of my pod, on a ticket to watch everything. And it was really hard to make that worthwhile. Because even between the two of us, we could not watch all that much per day. I think we averaged like four things per day. How did you guys watch?
2: So we did a weekend pass and then got a couple of one off tickets as well. So we just did Saturday, Sunday, I guess it was day passes for Saturday and Sunday, but I think we ended up watching six each day, Mm -hmm. but we started at 10 AM, which is when like the replays from the previous days were available. Mm -hmm. And so we usually could get one or two in before the premiere started. And then we just kind of slotted them in between the premieres as much as possible, which was stressful (laughs) sometimes, but uh, I mean, we got through a lot of them and then, we got tickets to the replay of The World to Come on, on Wednesday night. So I just got
1: four one-offs for the weekend. And then I had bought the winners, the audience winner's pass for Wednesday. because I thought, well, since there's so many films and I don't really know anything about any of them and I don't have uh, so much money or time, I will let the audience curate it for me a little bit.
0: And which one of those was more cost effective? I'm just curious. I know mine was least cost effective. So we can rule me out right away. Yeah, I think we ended up spending so the day passes
2: were 75. And then individual tickets were 15. So if you saw five movies in a day, then it kind of evened out. That's why we aimed for six. Just yeah. to make the best of it, but I mean, we're also sharing a pass too. So,
1: yeah. I
0: like, so it's divided by two in your case. Yeah, yeah.
1: I think I, I paid one sixty altogether for the one hundred dollar mm-hmm. audience pass, and then the um, fifteen dollars for four. So, I mean, it seemed like a good value. It was, it was just on the bubble of maybe not being a good value depending <laughs> on whether or not I like the films that I saw on that Wednesday. I was able to watch. Oh, gosh, I think it was maybe six films, uh, five films and the animation spotlight. So it was was a pretty full day for me. I I knew I really didn't have a lot of time and I was just going to bear down on one day and and do stuff. And that was a way to see things that I wouldn't have been able to get into before.
0: And I wondered for you guys, what were the standouts for you in terms of within the audience award winners and so forth? So we did not... I don't think we watched any of the audience award winners. Well, well, any of the award winners, period.
2: I I actually don't know if any of our favorites ended up winning any awards. Um, I don't know what the awards mm -hmm. were. I didn't
3: follow that. Sorry.
2: (laughs) Um, I think both are for both of us. Marvelous in the Black Hole was like our favorite of it. Just it was just really well made and very like heartwarming but also like I definitely cried while watching it and it was just a great film and then I really really like Street Gang as well but I'm also a big Sesame Street fan I'm a huge Jim Henson fan. I went to University of Maryland. So I feel like you kind of are required to be a Jim Henson fan if you went to University of Maryland. So and I really enjoyed that one because even though I do know a lot about Sesame Street, it had some other stuff that I didn't necessarily know about it. So I would say those were like my two top ranked ones. What about you?
3: My favorite, I think, was was Marvelous. I just I thought that was worked as a movie. I thought the characters, I'm trying to remember the name of the, uh, the, the girl that was the uh,
0: Sam. Yeah,
3: like the, the actress there. Like, that's I always say to Galen, like, you know, we watch something or like, okay, that's somebody to watch. You know, that's somebody. Oh, that yeah. If you hear that, they're going to be in something, you know, especially a younger person, and they just they knock your socks off. You're like, okay, that's somebody. I'll, I'm gonna give a shot to something I see them in, you know, in the future.
0: And that's the movie that I saw that I was like, I really wish I had this movie when I was that age. If I were that age, again, it would be so empowering to have this movie.
3: Yeah. So I like that. I also thought uh, World to Come. I I really liked that one a lot. Uh, I liked Land a lot. I I thought and I think Caitlin and I have some stuff to talk about, you know, if we're going through like, you know, in more details of that, but I wasn't sure that I was gonna like it like first like third and then it was self-aware enough of what was going on that i was like okay now this is this is good and i thought it ended up really working as a fan of from personal experience like a lot of outdoorsy stuff and and hunting and being outdoors all the way to like movies about stuff like that like jeremiah johnson which also kind of starts off the same way where he's like freezing to death until someone kind of shows him the ropes you know i i I thought the movie worked and I, i thought it did a really good job for what it was doing Um, I saw in the Alamo thing, they they have promotional beanies, which I thought was hilarious.
0: Uh, (laughs) Lisa, what about you? What were your top films? My three top
1: films were all documentaries. I didn't honestly see that much that wasn't a documentary, or at least my watches were skewed that way. So the Sparks Brothers movie is, for me, it was sublime. I keep thinking about it. I keep enjoying it in my head. Can't wait to watch it again. I want to evangelize it to everyone. It was just such a terrific, joyful documentary about a band that a lot of people don't know, but also in a way about a fandom and a passion. And and I think we can all relate to that on some level because we're all a passionate fan of something. And oftentimes something other people don't necessarily get or know about. So that unfulfilled fancy of, of introducing the rest of the world to that thing that we love that other people don't know about is great. I just also loved that it was an extension of the band itself. He gets them so much that the things that he did in the film to tell their story and to convey their music were really in tune with what the band would have done themselves. And uh, that was really cool. And I think whenever a documentary can do that, when it can reflect the, the essence of the thing it's documenting, like it just takes the whole thing to another level. The next one I really enjoyed was Summer of Soul. That one, of course, you know, a lot of people are going to see with good reason. I was really impressed with the story of it. You know, this uh, 1969 Festival of Art. I loved how beautiful it looked. You know, this was footage that hasn't been seen since it was shot. And those are always gifts, right? But then you see it and it's Really well preserved visually or photographically and audio and and that's like miraculous that something from that long ago you know fifty year old tape still or, or film just still looks good and sounds good so and it was it was really great and uh, uh, Amir did a really wonderful job directing it and putting all the pieces together and conveying a really cool story plus get to see Stevie Wonder play the drums. <laughs> so cool. Um, <laughs> and then my next favorite was Flea, which it was a lot of people. Um, it was a standout for them, which is a documentary, but an animated documentary, which, which made it really unusual and fresh and um, told a, a really powerful story that you just wanted to see how it would work out, see how it ended. And it raised a lot of interesting questions about, The reliability of a narrator and things like that. Um, So it it was very good. Very, very good.
0: Yeah. And Flea was actually my absolute favorite from the festival as a whole, partially because it played with the idea of documentary fiction as a whole, as you were saying. And you got the sense that they had actually filmed it as a documentary at one time and then decided Mm -hmm. to do flashbacks in an animated sequence, and then just animated all of the pieces they had filmed as documentary, too. Because you -hmm. you see all these intimate moments between the man who is a refugee and his lover to be husband, and then you're always wondering how much of this story he's told to everyone around him versus what he's telling to the camera. It's a very interesting narrative. And of course, it's a narrative that's so essential in terms of understanding the refugee experience as a whole. Well, the, the Sparks
1: documentary does that too in the sense that where there is no footage of an event happening, oftentimes there's another way of telling it and sometimes it is animated. And I that's kind of a neat compelling choice to be making in documentaries now. And I hope that people keep doing it because it it is so effective and creative. And and I I
0: like that element. And I saw that in a couple of other films too, like El Perro Que No Calla, The Dog Who Wouldn't Be Quiet. And Marvelous in the Black Hole also had wonderful animation as well. I feel like this actually was the year where animation became very mainstream in a lot of the cinema. I don't know. Did you guys feel that way? sweet apples so
2: we didn't catch flea or sparks brothers though i wanted to see both of them i did really like the animation in marvelous and the black hole i liked that i feel like it was just really well incorporated and i think it's one of the benefits of animation tools being more accessible to people but uh kate sang who was the director i may have butchered her name no that's um, right Okay. She, I believe was like an animator first and I know she's an illustrator as well. And so I think that it's really cool that she was able to incorporate her art and art style into that movie because I think that it works very well, especially when you do have sort of like these fantastical elements where it's like not necessarily like a fantasy but it fits within that narrative, especially when you're talking about stuff like magic and all of that sort of thing. So I think that it worked really, really well for that.
1: I can't wait to see that movie. It sounds amazing. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It really is a fabulous film. It's funny because I saw it side by side with Zoya and she immediately was like best of the festival right here. And I was like, I really, really liked it, but I would have loved it if I were younger, because it expresses perfectly everything I felt at this age. And unfortunately, it's a little late for me now, was the way I felt about it. But that's not to say it's not a brilliant film, because it absolutely is. And it's not the film's fault that I don't connect to it in the way that teenage me would absolutely have connected to it. But I, I adore that film. And I wonder though, did anyone else watch any of the horror content? Yeah, I, well, I watched. Um,
1: I watched Eight for Silver. Oh, how was that? It was good. You know, um, it wasn't perfect, but I liked a lot of aspects of it. Eight for Silver is a period piece about werewolves. It's a werewolf movie, basically, but takes it from a neat angle, sort of you know, indigenous people and a curse and all these other things and but it's shot in black and white and it's it's really the cinematography is really stunning even if you are not into anything else about the film visually it's it's really neat to watch Hmm. you know I had a few problems with it but I was overall I was entertained and I thought well this is a seems to be a nice addition to the horror genre and I'm not a horror person so you know I, I watched it sort of Carefully gone. Okay, I might not like this um, because it's not my genre, but I did end up liking it. The other one I saw was *The Blazing World*, which is kind of experimental horror, I guess. Yeah, uh, fantasy, yeah. super weird. It wasn't my thing, but I I respect it for what it was. A lot of the choices that it made and the visual effects, that kind of stuff, was interesting. It wasn't for me, but I know other people will probably just love it. It was a really solid genre movie.
0: And it was a first-time female director. And I think for yeah. a lot of people, that that's the important thing, is welcoming a lot of women into the horror space as first-time directors. Mm-hmm. For me, it was just a little bit too strange to quite hit the right notes. There were a lot of better First female-directed horror films that were at Sundance that got a lot less attention, unfortunately, like Censor Mm. and Knocking, both of which I absolutely loved. Knocking is sort of known as the Swedish gaslighting movie Mm. that was phenomenal. I highly recommend that anyone seek it out this coming year. And Censor is specifically looking through the eyes of a censor of horror movies who is a female who is trying to do her best job possible in the era of video nasties in England. It's a very unusual setup. Caitlin, did you see that one? We did not. But one
2: of my friends who is, uh, they're really big horror fans, they did some individual tickets and one of them was censor and they really, really enjoyed it. It just didn't fit into our schedule, unfortunately. So Uh. but it's something that I'll probably try to catch later on. We tried watching Superior and I think we got like 30 minutes into it and we were just like, yeah, we're not digging this at all. So we ended up just turning it off and watching the Romeo and Juliet adaptation, Mm -hmm. which was like told all through like social media, like TikTok and live streams and Instagram. And I think it was really interesting and could talk about that more. But yeah, Superior didn't really... Land with either of us.
0: It didn't land for me either, and I did exactly the same thing with Superior. Yeah. Unfortunately, we also
2: caught. I don't know if it would be horror? I guess it's more fantasy, but we caught Prisoners of Ghostland. Yeah, uh, I caught that too. Which so it was the Nicholas Cage one, um, <laughs> where it's like a Mad Max,
3: Samurai, Samurai Cowboy Western, yeah.
2: It's a whole lot of like genre mashing. I was not a huge fan of it. I think Chris really liked it. But you also tend to like those genres more than I do.
3: It was, it was fun. It was interesting. I mean, it was almost to the point where it was like a parody of, of the genre. And it was like, you know, is it, a, it was a parody? Is it homages? Is it just what they're trying to do? I mean, like the plot was literally the same as Escape from New York. They get the guy out of you know, Nicolas Cage out of prison and they give him the suit with bombs on it. You know, and say go rescue. It's not the president's daughter, but it's the sheriff or town mayor or something. He's he's some authority figure, and you know, go out and rescue this this girl go and bring her back, or or we're gonna explode you. So again, like literally, uh, you know, Let's escape from New York, or I guess mm-hmm. escape from L.A. They they rescue the daughter, but you know, the same thing. And, and a lot of stuff. You you literally have people in uh, cowboy outfits with you know old, old lever action guns and revolvers, and then you have literally samurai. In samurai outfits in the same town and it you know it's very clearly it was set in like one of those standard kind of japanese ego period samurai streets with all the, like the you know the low roofs and all all that stuff that they had just put a bunch of neon lights on everything and it was it was a lot of fun it was very very japanese i think they kind of gave the direction nicholas cage was be nicholas cage playing nicholas cage in a nicholas cage movie yeah
0: <laughs> yeah that, that is a perfect way to explain <laughs> that film, because Sion Sono, who directed this film, is actually known for a lot of wonderful Japanese films, and this was his first English-language film that he's ever done. I thought it was so weird that this was his first way to put together an English-language film. But I <laughs> I did find it a fascinating cultural artifact, because he has so many wonderfully crafted individual images that are just so off-putting and weird in between the Nicolas cage So you've got parody, but then you've also got high weird, and you've got the lowbrow and the highbrow mixed together with Westworld mixed with who knows what else. But um, And then the other one we caught that...
2: It's like bordering on horror, but it's more like fantasy esque was um strawberry strawberry mansion, yeah, which I was hoping I was gonna like a lot more. It was described as very like David Lynch inspired also like science of sleep and Can't remember what the other comparison and it just looked like really weird, which is what I was hoping for. And it wasn't nearly as weird as I wanted it to be. But I thought it was visually really interesting. I liked the story a lot. We had just recently this year watched Black Moon, which it reminded me a lot of Chris also had mentioned that as well. So it was good, but I feel like I wanted more weirdness from it. I feel like it felt like it had to explain itself a lot to the audience, which I always kind of get annoyed about in movies. Mm. And I just want it to be weird and don't explain to me why it's weird. Yeah.
3: Yeah, A lot of it was about going into dreams and and viewing dreams. And in a lot of those, you're, you're going to have, you know, a one-to-one symbolism where, okay, this thing correlates to this other thing and you need to have a little bit of that. Otherwise the movie just doesn't make sense. And that was kind of what we were talking about like, black moon where it's a very dreamlike very um abstract and there really isn't a plot to that that movie it's just sort of a series of events that happen which i think works in its own way but you know not for everything and when you have something like uh you know lynch with like fire walk with me where you have a lot of these like extended dreamy type sequences i think part of the reason that that works and a lot of the reason that people kind of go back to that is that while there are parts of it that are understandable and you can watch it and you go, Oh, I've seen it twice. And now I understand what this is referencing or this is foreshadowing or this represents. Cause I've paid you know, close attention. It kind of rewards you for that. But there's also stuff that's just there for no reason. It's just there to exist. And, or maybe you just haven't figured it out. And I kind of feel like if you're going to have a dream abstract kind of absurdist movie, like it's okay to have stuff that is abstract and absurdist and does not explain itself. And I don't know if that was something that with this movie where they felt like they couldn't do that or they just didn't want to, but it would have really, really been like one of my favorites had it been a little, just a little bit over the edge of, of being a little bit less explicable than it was. But visually, I thought it was really cool and I, I thought they were really going for um, going for something interesting.
0: Was there anything else that you saw, Lisa, that you would classify as experimental or strange?
1: Oh, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's see. So I saw "Users," which is a documentary. It won the directing award for the U.S. side, and um, it was a very unusual doc to be recognized. I thought, and that it was the the filmmaker was concerned about technology and how her child is growing up in a world that is, in a lot of ways, unrecognizable to the one that the rest of us have grown up in simply by the, the way that technology is involved in everything. And I, that's as far as I can get in terms of what the movie was about. It was beautifully shot. The, the cinematography was incredible, but it was a very abstract film. I, the, the word you used earlier really connected with me on this one. Um, I didn't really follow it. And I guess that a lot of other people did and thought it was awesome because it won the work. But I'm still thinking about it and trying to figure out what I was supposed to come away with on that one. One I watched that I don't even mention that I saw um, <laughs> was CryptoZoo, ah. which is totally weird and you know very experimental um, um, animated film. Yep. I couldn't get through it. I got to admit, and I don't bail very easily. But that is one of the aspects of uh, of screen of streaming a festival is that it's a lot easier to vote with your thumb than it is. If you're sitting in a room uh, with a bunch of other people where you feel a little bit more boxed in because there are people there and you also just, you're just used to settling in and, yeah. and watching something, even if it's not for you, yeah. but that one was a really tough watch. I, I thought it was uh, the when we were talking about animation earlier and the different styles, I think one of the things that came through to me on the festival was there are just so many animation styles. And unfortunately, a lot of times the style of animation can determine whether or not you're going to enjoy the film. Mm -hmm. If it's not pleasant to your eye or interesting to your eye, you might be a little bit turned off by what the story is. At least for me, that's a truth. I like certain kinds of animation more than others. And I'm fascinated to see what people do because it's something that I'm trying to do. But sometimes it can distance you from connecting in the film. And CryptoZoo was one where the animation style was very harsh for my eye. And so I had a difficult time getting past some of the choices that were made. And the story was very difficult. It was probably too late and I just couldn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was definitely one of the stranger films.
0: Well, we actually started trying to watch that first thing in the day. I had put it on the list because the concept sounded so interesting. Mythological creatures, what's not to love, right? But the fact that it opens immediately with graphic sex, the fact that the animation style is very confrontational, and lined in certain ways. It's not a soft, welcoming animation style, shall we say. For Dash Shaw, I think it's worked for him in certain films and shorts that he's done in the past and for my entire high school is sinking into the sea. But in CryptoZoo, I just couldn't continue watching it just because I, I felt a certain amount of distance right away, even though I could recognize that it was going interesting places, I just couldn't follow. That was another interesting film. And then were there other documentaries that people watched? Um, We watched a few. So we watched Try Harder,
2: which is about the Lowell High School in San Francisco. Um, So it's for gifted students, it's competitive. And it follows the few students, most of them who are seniors, basically like through the process of applying to colleges and taking all of these very like rigorous coursework and all of that and how they really slotted into these boxes because they're like the smart kids and they're like uh, test robots or something like that.
3: And how What lot of them are East Asian.
2: yeah. And so, sort of, like, how those stereotypes sort of manifest and then, you know, showing that they're more than this, just this and, like, their lives outside of it. um, Some of them are from, like, lower income and others are, you know, have these, like, very real problems, but because they're seen as, like, going to, like, this the smart kids school that's all they're really seen as it, it was good i really liked it a lot um i thought it was funny they mentioned thomas jefferson which is the science high school in fairfax county so of course like if you are in northern virginia you are well aware of tj and apparently it's like nationally well known as well internationally well International, internationally yeah and it's funny because well, i don't know if you want to talk about it
0: yeah
3: no i i um I didn't go to TJ, but I did go to school in uh, Fairfax County. I was in a gifted program in um, elementary and middle school, so I had a lot of classmates that ended up going to TJ, and we definitely like the racial mix. There were a lot of Asian, a lot of a lot of Indian kids, whereas like the overall school population wasn't and. A lot of what the movie was talking about was kind of their their parents and there these you know the expectations and these the, you know the, the very very tough strain that these kids were put under to as an expectation to go to the top colleges and to take all of the classes, all of the AP, all of the IB classes, all of that stuff, um, you know, all the test prep and everything. And that was definitely something I saw a lot of, you know, with classmates and with people. And, and I think Northern Virginia, especially in, in Fairfax County, is a very very competitive. Uh, school area. So there was definitely a lot, you know, even though this was in California, you know, in San Francisco, it definitely I felt like, yeah, that, that seems like I knew people like that. Like I, I went to school with people where they had that same pressure, it felt very, very accurate. Um, and especially, you know, I graduated, I guess, almost two decades ago. <laughs> and, you know, just to see how much more intense the college application, because, you know, they're not making more Stanford's, they're not making more Harvard's, but the applicant pool has just been increasing every single year. And, you know, so they say one out of 100 people gets into these schools that apply, or I think it's less than that. But these odds are, are intense and the pressure you know, its very, very interesting. And I thought it was a really showed things from a, a perspective that people that went to school much longer ago than, than even I did, um, may not realize and you know, oh, yeah, you know, I put an application to two, two colleges and I got in and it was fine. Yeah, I got a, a you know, gotta be average but you know i got into harvard and it's like no that doesn't happen
0: for me i specifically did not watch that movie because (laughs) i have been teaching in that environment for so long that it's like no i know that story i don't want to hear more about it because i've lived it was
2: I I really appreciate it, though, because it does focus more on like the kids and their lives and that they're not just, you know, test scores and sort of like that realization on their parts, too, that even though they are under this immense pressure, that's not who they are. And really, like the two most well-adjusted kids are the ones who have parents who are like... Yeah, like, we want you to succeed, but, like, don't kill yourself for this sort of thing. Like, you know, they're also the ones that have a more clear vision of, like, they want to do something in the world. And then school is a tool for them to be able to do this, as opposed to, well, I want to go to Stanford because it's the best school.
0: It's just one of those things where like you spend so much time with these kids and getting to know these stories and it breaks your heart when you see them set their sights on one school that they have to go to yeah or else their parents are going to kill
3: yeah from a filmmaking perspective i mean it was it was intense and they they did a great job of capturing that you know and they they have you know footage of them looking at, you know, the emails for their, their applications. And there's a scene where, you know, somebody's like, okay, deferred, deferred, deferred. And she's just going through this list of like, like literally like every Ivy league school and just going through. And it's, you're just sitting there, like holding your breath for this girl. And I think they really captured a lot of that, you know, stressful energy. Um, And from a documentary perspective, like Uh they did a fantastic job of like really making you feel like, I'm
0: really glad I didn't watch it now because yeah, that is no, literally like, every spring for me when I'm living that with my kids. So yeah,
3: yeah. no, it, it was intense. Um, I thought it was very good, but it was like, at the end of it, we were like,
2: <laughs> <laughs> and then the other one that we watched was In the Same Breath, which was oh. from uh, Nanfu Wong, who mm-hmm. uh, previously did One Child Nation, which we saw at last Weekend last year. Last year, two years ago. ago, Yeah. It was twenty nineteen, which I really, really, really liked. Like it was a difficult thing to watch One Child Nation, but I think that it was so well done. In the same breath was at like the top of my list of movies that I wanted to see. I don't think it's as polished as One Child Nation, but I think it's mostly just because she had a story that she wanted to tell Mm -hmm. in the middle of it. She actually went to Sundance. Last year, and she had been visiting her family in China. She left her son with her mother in China while she went back to Sundance. This February. This was in February of last year. And then the day that she got to the U.S., they shut down. The country in China so her son was still in China with her mother and so she had to figure out basically like how to get their son back but a lot of it deals with sort of like the the Chinese propaganda that's coming that was coming out as well as sort of the response to it and how the narrative that you know they really got it under control in China and their numbers are so low is not necessarily the case because the Chinese government is not exactly the most forthcoming about a lot of this stuff so she actually worked with some local filmmakers who were able to shoot footage in some of the hospitals there like the funeral homes really and so it's really interesting because it's stuff that isn't being seen, but she's also in the United States while all of this is going on. And she does a really good comparison about like the response and the government's response of like how they're covering it up things that they're saying one thing, but another thing is going on and how the impact is really minimized. And a lot of the stories aren't being told and then ties into this sort of idea of one of the core issues in both countries is sort of this slide towards totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. It was well done. Again, I don't think it was as polished as One Child Nation was, but I think that is a story she clearly had been working on for many years, whereas this was very much like, we need to get this film out now because this is a story that needs to be heard right now. I think she Mm -hmm. has
3: footage from like New Year's Day in the movie. So, I mean, it was like she was still filming stuff. She was still putting stuff together as of um, January, January of, of, year. of 2021. Oh, so, yeah. oh my gosh. Um, but it's definitely an important thing. And I think it's good that, um, you know, somebody talks about is that a lot of the, the history gets quickly rewritten where, you know, people will say, you know, especially when you have misinformation is, as, 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 you know, intentional, Oh, everything was, was fine. You know, there was a little bit of a problem, but everything got fixed really fast and you can fudge numbers. And, and a lot of it was talking about like the Chinese government saying, Oh, only 3000 people had died in Wuhan. And she's talking with funeral home directors, and they're like, yeah, we were cremating 10,000 people a month. So there was, you know, like they say 3,000, but it was probably, you know, 10 times that number. But we're not sure, because we're only one, one, you know, funeral home, and there was 20. But at the same time, you're talking about a lot of this misinformation that was coming out of our own country. You know, at the same time, it's sort of these two opposites.
1: Did anyone else watch All Light Everywhere? Mm-mm. No. I keep wanting to find somebody who watched it. Like I said, I was just curious to see if somebody had seen it, but they have.
2: So I'm wondering, so I did not catch Coda, which I was very upset about, but I noticed that Ariel, you rated it much lower than I've seen anybody else. So I've been actually very curious to sort of get your opinion on it because it seems to differ quite a bit from others.
0: Yeah, (laughs) it does. And see, this is the thing about disabilities at this festival. One thing that I think this festival did really, really well was trying to encourage more female filmmakers, more Black filmmakers, more Indigenous filmmakers, more Latinx filmmakers. But the only stories with disabilities that I saw were Coda and Four Feet High. Four Feet High was a wonderful Argentinian series that they had on the Indie filmmaker series that was available throughout the festival that was absolutely incredible. It's actually an Argentine series that will hopefully be picked up by a TV station somewhere, maybe HBO, I hope, please God, HBO pick this up because it is about a girl with cerebral palsy who is a punk rock badass who is advocating for proper sex education in her school, and she is amazing in terms of specifically talking about sexuality and disability as an intersectional problem that most people aren't talking about, and this as a specific topic is something that is sort of near and dear to my heart, and I loved this series. It's heartwarming, it's beautiful, and it's everything I wanted Coda to be. Not that CODA had to be about sexuality and disability, but I wanted CODA to be heartwarming and real and about real people. And unfortunately, when it came to CODA, I was so predisposed to love CODA. First of all, just the fact that there was a film named CODA made (laughs) me literally (laughs) jump for joy when I saw it on the program. I've taught death education, and I know people who are... who are children of deaf adults. And the fact that there would be a film that represents sign language in such an inclusive way had me really excited. And I was overjoyed about the fact that there would be such a thing. But fundamentally, the film was a sitcom. It was not really a story about people's lives in a full picture of what it is to live with disability. There were a few individual scenes that were wonderful here and there, but for the most part, It had the emotional depth of a sitcom. And while it's great that a film about disability is taking off, and I wouldn't want to begrudge its success, at the same time, I feel like we deserve better stories about disability than that. And we should be demanding better stories. I don't want to say that just because a film is about this thing that I care about, it automatically gets a free pass for not being a good movie. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's what I have to say about that. I I liked it better than you, but I I (laughs) had my own problems with it. What were your problems with it?
1: Well, I thought the subject matter was interesting for a, a fictional story, for a narrative. But at a basic level, it was the formula that we've seen in a million other movies. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the young girl who wants to do something, she's challenged, she's held back, she has her own issues, she has to get past and she has the family It isn't supportive and the structure of the conflicts and the, you know, the denouement, everything was just by the book. Yeah. You know, even the end was by the book and everything was just perfectly sewn up and in a way that, you know, that's fine. Um, it happens these movies you know I was just surprised that it was a Sundance movie to be honest with you I yeah. thought that particularly a really highly decorated Sundance movie yeah because it I guess there wasn't anywhere there isn't anywhere else for it to go it's a little bit the death storyline of it makes it a little bit less sellable in a market if it hasn't gotten the attention that it got at Sundance
0: oh, I guess yeah. that's what I'm yeah. saying
1: Um, You couldn't have sold that movie to Netflix for much unless it had gotten this big thing. Um, The performances were good. I liked that. But in general, the writing wasn't terribly edgy or um, unusual.
0: And I really didn't think that particularly the death characters had anything interesting to go off writing-wise. I Mm -hmm. was really bothered by the fact that so much of the writing fell apart as soon as it needed for her as the hearing daughter to be able to escape and go live her own life. All of a sudden, all of these things that our actual problems for deaf adults in the world are suddenly not there as impediments anymore. They've magically overcome them.
1: What did you think of Sound of Metal?
0: I loved Sound of Metal. I was that's crazy 100%. about yeah, Sound there, of Metal.
1: That's where we're looking at kind of apples and oranges. I mean, it's the same milieu in, in a sense, but I think the vibe, the the whole edginess of Sound of Metal worked better for me with this topic.
0: But Sound of Metal was also wonderful in that it was very specific about issues within the deaf community. CODA Mm -hmm. glides over issues within the deaf community in ways that Sound of Metal addressed them head on very directly. And when I think about what Riz Ahmed did in terms of preparing his performance, and spending time within deaf communities and everything that they did with the sound design to help simulate that environment. There's so much that's deep in Sound of Metal where it's only at the epidermal level in CODA. I was kind of
2: curious too, and obviously I didn't see CODA, but I do think hearing about it, my concern was a lot of times the way that stories about disability are written are how someone else's disability affects a person without a disability and so it kind of seemed like this was more focused feel free to tell me if I'm wrong but Mm -hmm. like sort of how like their disability was holding her back, exactly which I think is not necessarily a narrative that we need like I think that we should be hearing more stories from people who have disabilities, and not just the challenges they face, because I do think that's important as well, but like the joy in their lives and like the things exactly. that like make them unique and the way that they experience the world because of their disability and not just the way that they are held back in the world because of their disability. Mm-hmm. I think that Sound of Metal does a little bit of that. And I really like that Sound of Metal also cast actors who are deaf. I think that it was also really interesting that when he goes to live with the other people who are deaf in that community and before he knows how to sign like we don't get subtitles during Mm -hmm. that while they're signing because Mm -hmm. he doesn't understand it and he is the audience insert there and so we don't understand it either unless we are people who know ASL. I just think that that was a really interesting choice especially when you get into like the politics of cochlear implants which is definitely a huge, huge controversial topic in deaf communities. So I'm still interested in seeing CODA partially because it has gotten such great reviews, but yeah, since I know disability advocacy is something that you're very passionate about, Ariel. um, I was really interested to hear your thoughts on it, especially since you didn't seem to care for it as much as a lot of other people did.
0: And I will say it does show the joy that people who have disabilities can really bring to everything that they do. I loved those joyful moments in the film Coda. I really did. But they were not enough to make up for the damaging parts of the narrative. And you very succinctly put what I was trying to dance around and shouldn't have been trying to dance around. So thank you, Caitlin, for putting it very bluntly. I appreciate that. And one other quick thing about disabilities that shocked me at this festival was that While they did a really great job with captions in terms of almost all of the content was perfectly captioned, I reached out to ask what individual films had strobing in them. And nobody would respond to me at all mm. at the accessibility desk, mm. uh, either the phone number or the email. I didn't know if anyone else had had this experience with accessibility desks ever at Sundance. Mm. This was my
2: first
1: Sundance experience. So I was pretty pleased with the way everything was run, mm. but the, I didn't have the, any obstacles. And I think that was worked for me. I was happy with the interface and like. Watch it on my television and I was, you know, I was a heavy camper, but I did read your post a little bit ago about, about these issues. And I know it's come up before, you know, there are certain disabilities or concerns that are not at the top of the list for folks who are determining what people should be warned about or be concerned about. I mean, they're, they get wrapped around the axle about, you know, making sure there's seating and things like that, which is all, it's really important but there are other things, like you said, the strobing, that it's hard, to, it's hard to get your arms around or that isn't a priority for people to pay attention to. And, um, but I think what happens at some of these festivals is that they're obviously not collecting the information from the people who are screening the films enough.
0: Well, and it just bothered me because, like, on some of the films, you had to specifically check, you know, I am over age 18 in order to go Mm -hmm. to the film. They could have just as easily said, I acknowledge that this has strobing in it and moved on.
2: Mm -hmm. And I know that Mm -hmm. in the um, schedule, like, for some of them, they did put, like certain triggers that are pretty common, like for sexual assault and graphic yeah. violence and stuff yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. So it's kind mm-hmm. of surprising to me that, I mean, I, I guess it's, it's not surprising to me, but it's unfortunate that it's not something that they can extend to something like that, where it would be very simple for them to just add that extra step. But unfortunately, people who don't have disabilities and don't necessarily need accommodations don't think about this stuff which is really unfortunate especially in a film festival that prides itself on being very inclusive so yeah.
0: and especially in a year where it was trying to be so inclusive and yeah. i just wonder why people aren't willing to go the extra mile to just ensure that they're not endangering the lives of their viewers that's that's yeah. what it comes down to yeah. So anyway but Let's end this on a positive note and just say what film from this festival do you most want to see your friends' reactions to?
1: It's Sparks Brothers. It's easy. I don't know if anybody here is familiar with the band, but you should be because you will love them. The content of their music is so fun and so interesting and so creative the fact that they have they're a magnet for other creative people it's really inspiring and they have literally a thousand songs they have 25 albums and anywhere that you get into sparks is the best place to get into it like you it doesn't matter you don't have to you don't have to get to the band at 1967 you get to them in 1985 or 1997 or 2020 it doesn't matter I just think if you are interested in a fun band that you don't know about, if you are an Edgar Wright completist, if you want to see Neil Gaiman do a do a little bit, uh, I mean, there's, all, there's something for everybody in this film. You definitely feel good about spending your time with it. And I found it very inspiring as a filmmaker um, just to see all the choices that were made. And I, I hope that more people will see it. I don't think it has any like set distribution yet. I'm I'm sure it has a deal, but I don't know what it is or how long it's going to take for us to get to see it. But it's going to be amazing. And I can't wait to see it. And I hope we get to see it with friends.
2: I'm going to go with two of them because you're cheating. I know know. they're so closely related that I feel like they have to. So mine would be passing which we haven't talked about at all
0: yeah why haven't we talked about that
2: <laughs> and the world to come the world to come those who know me know that i am a huge huge fan of queer period pieces like porch a lady on fire is like my movie that i like force everyone to watch i did not love these movies as much as i love portrait but i feel like portrait has set an impossible standard for like <laughs> any queer period piece to ever match ever um so it's a little unfair but um i thought that both of them were really interesting in what they were trying to do they're very different movies i liked that um the world to come was shot on 16 millimeter and really like invokes a certain like feeling with the way that it is shot and passing does the same thing with the black and white the four three and then also is shot very much like a 1920s silent film and both of them do a very good job of invoking that time period in which it is set my biggest qualm with queer period pieces is that they will never have a happy ending though i was saying um to chris afterwards i was like we need to go back and watch gentleman jack because ann lister is like the BAMF one, when when you go into a lot of these movies, it's just like, all right, well, probably one of them is going to die. If not, both of them, if they don't die, they're not going to end up together. So you just kind of have to go in knowing that and knowing that it's probably going to make you cry. But I, I hope that especially because passing is not as explicitly queer as the world to come. I'm really hoping that like that piece of it doesn't get lost in the conversations about it because it's not just that, you know, they're both mixed race and they, one of them embraces being black more and the other embraces being white more, that it's not just that part of it, but, and there's a line in there that's like, you know, we're all what well, is it like we're all passing
3: for something or we're all like hiding something or something yeah, I think like it's that. It's like we're all, we're all passing as something Yeah. Um, who yeah. she speaks to a man who's very clearly implied to be closeted gay yeah. and married as a, with a yeah. beard. Yeah.
2: yeah. So I'm hoping that like we get a lot like queer critics who are writing about both of these pieces. And so that I think those two are the ones that I want people to see the most so that,
0: so that I can talk about it with them. <laughs> i think that would be fabulous i think christopher what about you
3: um we had had a lot of conversations about kind of the similarities between those and definitely kind of the barrier gaze unfortunate trope that spoilers <laughs> spoilers potentially <yeah. laughs> but that is kind of a, a pitfall of period one of the ones that we didn't really talk about but i i really enjoyed um was land brother wright's film uh she, she directed and starred in and at the beginning, the first start, I think, as I said, like, I really wasn't sure if I was going to like it because there's a lot of movies about, oh, you know, the white yuppie goes out and lives in the wild and it's just so easy and anybody can do it. And all you have to do is give up your cell phone. And it started like that. And I've got a lot of outdoors type experience. Caitlin grew up literally on a mountain in, uh, <laughs> in Colorado. And we were both you sort know, of watching this and we were saying to each other, oh, my God, she's going to die. She's gonna die." <laughs> Um, And it was just like a lot of the stuff like, oh, she doesn't have a well, like she's got to go carry her water like, oh, she doesn't have nearly enough firewood. She's got, you know, she's in Wyoming. She's going to die. And, you know, and and they they sort of took that start. And about like a third of the way through the movie acknowledges, oh, no, she's she's not in good shape. Like (laughs) she is definitely underprepared. And it was a lot more realistic than I, I was expecting and then the movie moved on from there and went on to its own different direction so it was like from from a surface level yeah i thought it was great of like yeah this is it does you know not everybody can live out them you know be a mountain man you know or a woman but it also did a great job of dealing with grief at the same time which was kind of the underlying concept of the movie and you know you find out what why she is trying to do this thing, why she's leaving society. And I thought it did a great job of dealing with that. Uh, The ending was, was fantastic. And, you know, from a cinematography directing, editing, like the, the movie was very, very well made. I think we, we watched the QA and she said that they filmed it in like, like 20 days or something. Yeah, like
2: 28 days. They shot it in enti- in a month and it takes uh-huh. place over the course of two years. Yeah. So you just have all of the seasons they shot in in Alberta. And so they're like, all right, it's snowing today. Let's get all those winter shots in.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like everything that takes place in like the summer, it was shot in like one or two days, which just really from a filmmaking's perspective, like the economy of that is is really incredible. But yeah, no, I I thought it was really good. Um, And and I'm sure, you know, that one's got a little bit more star power than a lot of the stuff that we saw, and I think in general at Sundance, so I think that'll probably get picked up. And I think a lot of people see it, but I was kind of saw it, and I was like, oh, this is just going to be, you know, live, laugh, love, go out and live in the woods and have a nice time. And I was like, oh, no, no, okay, this is really, we're going to deal with trauma, and we're going to deal with, it will kill you if you do not prepare yourself, and I thought it I thought it really works from that perspective.
1: I'm yeah. glad to hear you recommend that because I've read some headlines of reviews that were not particularly kind to the film in the sense that they maybe said it was a little slow, that it was just a, a little too maybe subtle than what people were expecting. And so what you what you've described to me sounds really interesting and so I'm definitely going to check that out when it's available to me because it sounds pretty cool. Survival stories can be really interesting and having it be, you know, female, that's surviving is of particular interest to me too. So.
0: And the one that I'm most looking forward to other people seeing is Mass, which was directed by Fran Kranz, who I always love personally. And I was very anti seeing this movie, Zoya made me do this movie. Because I was very against watching white man-directed movies this go-round. But this was a white man-directed movie that I kind of loved. And the entire thing is set inside one room as the family of one child who committed murder and was a school shooter and then shot himself confronts the family of one of the victims. And it is just inside this one small room in the basement of a church. And it is a phenomenal film. Ann Dowd gives an amazing performance in it. She is absolutely phenomenal. So is Martha Plimpton, and so is Jason Isaacs. And I really can't say enough good things about what he does here. You would think it was based on a play because it's sort of a one room thing, but Fran Kranz did an amazing job making it feel like more than a talking heads kind of thing. It's kind of an emotional journey that is going to be a hard sell for a lot of people, but it's incredible.
2: Yeah, I've heard really good things about it. Not just from you right now. Yeah,
1: Yeah. no, I have as well. And I only, I could have probably seen it at some point, but- I had a choice to make and it was a little bit too intense for me at that moment. I knew it was going to be a lot.
0: It's an intense movie.
1: I I want to be in the right frame of mind to really appreciate this one. So I I passed on it, but I am looking forward to the the day when I do
0: get to see it. So I want to thank you all so much for coming on and talking about your Sundance experiences and, I don't know. Do we hope we get to do this next year virtually or not? Or what do we wish? I mean, I honestly
2: am hoping that more festivals do at least some virtual screenings because like we don't have the means or the time to go travel to all of these festivals that we want to. But like we can take a day off of work and watch three days straight of movies at home Which financially is a lot more reasonable for us to accomplish than flying out to Utah. And that's, I definitely do miss like the theatrical experience, but I also think that there is a huge benefit to having the accessibility of this online and being able to view it from home. So maybe.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I I, I, I definitely agree with that. And I I hope that you know, it's it's something when you when you go to a festival or something like this, it, it pushes people outside of their comfort zones. And a lot of these movies are movies that I may not have, if I was scrolling through Netflix or, or something, I don't know that I would have picked a lot of these, but I really mm-hmm. enjoy them. Um, and I think that's one of the benefits of, um, and I think the ability to have that accessibility and, you know, not to mention literal accessibility of being able to screen stuff. I think, I, I hope that, yeah, as, as Caitlin said, I hope that it, or something going to continue with that once they sort of set up the infrastructure. Cause it's already exists now. I mean, they did it for this one. There really shouldn't be a.
0: A reason not to yeah. down yeah. the line. Yeah. yeah. I think the fact that the, the cost of
1: attending, you know, has definitely been leveled to the point where a lot more people can participate by doing it, you know, in this way. I mean, the idea of flying to park city to attend Sundance, you know, it's a dream of mine. It's been a dream of mine for decades but that's that's a huge financial hardship to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So this past year I was able to attend some Middleburg screenings, Middleburg film festival screenings, as well as some AFI film festival screenings online. And they were, they were wonderful. I mean that they, they just gave me a chance to see films. I wouldn't get to see for a while otherwise in the, in the comfort and safety of my own home. And, um, you know, I, I did the Loudoun Film Festival. You know, we had our first one here this past, uh, this past fall. They had some drive-in screenings. And so I, I went to those as well. And that was nice. But being able to watch things at home is great. And the, the price point for me, you know, I did what I could afford. And I got a reasonable amount of value for it. And I'd do it again. And I'll still dream about going to film festivals in person. That experience is unique and special and and I'm looking forward to having it again one day. But for now, you know, seeing this way is fine. Well I Miss you guys though. I miss you.
0: We miss you. Well, I miss you. you. <laughs> I, I miss you all. I miss seeing everyone. This just feels like therapy. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. I need this. Well, need unless you get to talk about the movies, it's like it hasn't didn't happen.
0: Right. You know? Right. It didn't really happen. Thank you again. And I hope you all have a wonderful Sunday. Have another yeah. Prosecco. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm going to do that. <laughs> thank I you think guys. That. Be well. Yep. Hope Take see care. See you
3: again soon. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening. And thank you for taking a moment right now to reflect with me on the history of the land you are listening on now. Whether you are stuck in traffic or sitting in your office chair, take the time to look up whose traditional lands you are on now, and what treaties govern those territories. I record this podcast on the site of lands stolen from the Manahoac people. I acknowledge that we need to protect and honor the history of the indigenous people from other tribal nations that also reside in Virginia and have made innumerable contributions to our region. I am grateful to work on this land. I acknowledge these facts in the hope that my listeners may join me in honoring our past, present, and future. Without this land, this earth, and each other, we are nothing. We will continue making our rounds of the festival circuit with guests from the International Film Festival of Rotterdam. Before I go, please take 30 seconds now to leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Podchaser, doesn't have to be anything fancy just a simple rto rocks my socks is good enough and connect with us on instagram and twitter where we are at omnibus ride you can also visit our website omnibusride.com where you can dive deeper into our content and learn more about the show a special thank you to our amazing editor william das we truly couldn't do what we do without him or danielle be well be safe And keep in touch.